All right, everybody. What you're about to hear is our very first live mentor session. We were joined for a Q&A with the legend himself, Jeffrey Zeldman. For those of you who couldn't attend live, we did this conversation using the Crowdcast platform. If you're not able to attend any of the mentor sessions live, don't worry. You can submit your questions on the Crowdcast event page or earlier in the week in the Ask Mentors Slack channel, and we'll be sure to ask the mentors. This conversation runs for about two hours, so it is a long one, but filled with some awesome information. He answered a couple of our questions that we really wanted to know, such as uh, where to blog, how to use Medium, how he manages multiple large side projects, very large side projects, that is, at the same time, and where he makes his money from. Most of this conversation is unedited, so you will hear the ums and some white space, so I suggest listening to this played back at faster speed. All right, here we go. First of all, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, I know this is something that you don't have to do, and taking your time out of the day to join us is a, like a huge thanks for us and everyone in the program. Just to kind of give you a little bit of a background of where we are now, we just started. This is actually the first official day of the Side Project Accelerator. Cool. Uh, we have 15 members in the program. We announced like last week was kind of the opening. Last week was kind of a pre-week where they just did introductions. We opened up a Slack group and they started uh, meeting each other and sharing lots of uh, good content for everyone to read, setting up reading lists, podcast, podcast list, and kind of just talking. And this is the first mentor session and they'll also get their first actual lesson and assignment today. So you're at the very beginning of the program. Uh, it's an exciting time. Everyone's kind of just getting started out to give you like a background of where we stand. So cool. Well, that's it. How about a little bit of an intro from your end for those who, who don't know all of your accolades? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a designer. Started designing websites by accident in 1995. Uh, at the time, I was a copywriter. I have a background. I've I, I been a musician. I was a journalist. I did a lot of stuff without much success. But in 1995, mm -hmm. I was working in, a, in advertising and client came in wanting a website was the first website I worked on and since uh, very soon after that I started something called ask doc I launched my personal site and started something called ask dr. web which was a, an online tutorial for how to make do web design because there were only a couple of those the first one I saw well I, I of course got Linda Wyman's books immediately and David Siegel's book immediately but there wasn't that much information online you could basically view source mm -hmm. that was it so uh, so I've always, from very early in my web design career, had this sort of education component to what I do. Um, not that I know better than anybody, but just that I was doing it. And to me, it seemed like a good thing to share. I was convinced that the internet was going to be huge and that I thought everyone was going to learn HTML and make their own websites. That part wasn't true. They waited for Twitter and Facebook, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> I am the co-founder. Uh, I'm the founder of a list of part magazine. For people who make websites is our old slogan. Uh, started in 1998. Well, we started in 97 as a mailing list for web designer developers, hybrids. Um, it was a curated list, which means I had a partner, Brian Platts. Uh, we would read all the letters that came in and then arrange them in, in terms of content and edit them. And so like we go, okay, well, today will be about JavaScript or whatever, you know, but based on what we were getting. Um, I turned that into a website in 1998. The first articles, uh, there was one by me, one by Glenn Davis, the guy from Project Cool, and uh, the Web Standards Project, one by, uh, anyway. Uh, right away, we started publishing a list of part, and it very soon became a 
place for articles about web standards advocacy. Okay. Web standards. Uh, I co-founded the Web Standards Project in 1998 with Glenn Davis, George Olson, a bunch of people. Um, and our, believe it or not, back then, uh, if you weren't around doing web design then, you had to do a different version of your site for each browser. Right? Each browser was like a, a unique piece of software. And even if you were trying to use CSS, which was barely supported in, in, in 1997, 1998, Netscape did it differently. So like if you wanted a margin, uh, you know, you you basically had to write different code for different browsers, IE3, IE4, Netscape 3, Netscape 4. Um, I don't know if those names mean anything to anybody listening, but uh, <laughs> so my friends and I just thought, well, that's stupid. If this keeps going, this is not sustainable. Soon there'll be 20 different browsers, right? And you'll spend all your time doing version checking instead of uh, doing better design, better writing, getting photography, doing strategy, doing content. I mean, there were so many things you could do as a designer. It just seemed foolish. And it seemed foolish for a client to spend most of the money having you do versions. So we, we found, uh, we found um, HTML and CSS, right? We didn't find them. They were they were there, but everyone was ignoring them. And we said, yeah, let's let's call these standards. The W3C, the group that invented them, uh, called them recommendations. And that was one of the problems. No, no browser maker felt compelled to do anything with these because they were just casual recommendations due to the, due to the politics of the organization. So we said, no, screw that, it, they're standards. And ECMAScript, the standardized version of JavaScript, which had just happened, that's a standard. And browsers, I mean, they had all kinds of innovations going on. Remember, this was a time when Flash and lots of stuff was coming out. And so people were excited about the web, which was great, but they were, uh, they really, it was a free for all. And we said, all that stuff is fine, but first nail down HTML, CSS, and JavaScript because if browsers support them and if we all use them correctly, we can make sites that work on any device. We can make sites that are accessible to all people. It was a pretty simple message, but it was radical at the time. I remember having friends, developers tell me, do you know how much I get paid for knowing the four ways to code a site? And I'm like, well, I hope you're looking forward to the 12 ways. Like, wouldn't you rather, wouldn't you be get, rather getting paid because you're a good coder or because you're a good designer? Like, wouldn't you rather, like, instead of knowing how is the right. Because the web's not going to advance if we all have to do all this stuff just to have a simple document page, right? And if if the web, I mean, and we see what's happened. Once standards came in and once people started using them, we evolved to HTML5. And we have a much more powerful and capable web now than we ever did. Um, so, and we have a web that could handle, you know, when Ethan Marcotte said, let's try responsive design, we have a web that... that that was actually completely legitimate premise because we have web standards. So I was involved in that. Um, and then a list apart for a long time was like the chief magazine about that because the other web magazines were about graphic design or about flash or something. And that was all good too. But the list apart was about what else uh, I then I started a conference 10 years ago called an event apart with Eric Meyer. Wait, before we get into that, you just... Oh, okay. You asked me to introduce myself. I have, okay, yeah, I'll stop. 
<laughs> Let me ask you a few, a million uh, questions on this already. And actually, we have a bunch of questions that we lined up that I think are pretty related. So let me pause you there for a second. Um, I, I do want to say, though, that everything I'm talking about is related to side projects because that's what these were. Everything I've talked about so far was a side project, and they made a difference on the web. So you never know what can happen if you try. So, okay, can you talk about that for a second? Uh, one of the questions we have is about, at the beginning you said you were designing uh, websites, and I guess that's how you were earning most of your income. How did you decide to start getting into side projects, and were you monetizing them? Was it just because of the pains you were feeling that you felt you had to do something for the greater good? Or talk about that a little bit. That's a great question. So uh, I didn't monetize them at all. In fact, a list apart didn't even have advertising until about, 10 years ago. Okay. Right. Which, which, so it's been around for 20 years. It had advertising for the second half of its existence. Back then, uh, a lot of people in the early web that you'd hear things like content wants to be free. Uh, there was just a euphoria that we could make stuff. Content wants I mean, <laughs> that's great. I, I'd been in bands that couldn't get record deals. Right. And I'd been, I tried to write, I'd written three books that didn't get published. Like I tried to do a bunch of stuff with no success. And then all of a sudden, all I have to do is learn HTML and CSS and I can do anything I want, mm -hmm. you know? So, so I was pretty excited and I think uh, it's, so it's a combination of the euphoria of I can make stuff. I mean, the first site I made was for a client. I quit my job soon after uh, to, to freelance on, on the web. Um, the second site I made was my personal site. And I just felt like everyone was going to have one of those. And we think of them as blogs now. And to some extent, it, that's what it turned into. That's all it is now. But at one time, it was like an entertainment site. I had a friend, Wafer Baby, uh, who had a, this amazing site where he made these uh, pixel by pixel in res edit. He made animations. It would take 60 hours to do like a, a 30 second animation dot by dot, like those were the tools that he had. But, uh, and it, he had this community called Wafer Baby where he showed the videos and had games and my site had games. And like, we were just basically like entertainers and doing whatever, doing whatever we wanted. So there was always the sense that the most fun you could have was to make stuff. And doing it for a client was great. That was the discipline. And that's how you learned all your skills. And you learned the skills of getting along with people and businesses, you learn, all that stuff's great, and I love client services, but the, then you'd have the pure pleasure of just sort of, I don't want to say goofing off, but, you know, it's like instead of watching TV, you'd make something, right? And there's nothing wrong with TV. I watch way too much TV, but, uh, but you know, it, you make something. Now, the Web Standards Project came about because um, we were angry. And it seemed like the two major browser makers of the time were locked in this war, browser wars you've heard of, and uh, and the people getting hurt were their users, right? Because companies would start making a decision like, well, we're only going to support IE. And like, I can remember, I mean, talk about accessibility. I can remember like going to the DMV website, right? Which is the Department of Motor Vehicles <laughs> in the USA and trying to see if my license had expired and it didn't, I needed a Windows machine. 
and then I needed IE6, and it's like, that's crazy. And has that improved today? I can't imagine that their website is uh, <laughs> much well, better. Well, there are some good government websites uh, now. There's a lot of terrible ones, but then there's some really good ones. There's 18F, there's a bunch of, uh, there's some a few groups in the government that are actually doing like, not just standards, but best practices and style guides, and people are actually copying them. And the BBC, okay, cool. uh, there's the BBC in England, there's the BBC style guide, and uh, there's gov.uk, which everyone looks at, as, and, at, and that's great. So there are places where governments, and I know that a lot of, in a lot of places in Europe, they, uh, they look at W3C recommendations almost as the law. So basically your site must be WCAG 2.0 compliant. Right, okay. you you have uh, if it's not accessible, you can be sued. All that stuff. So there is oh, wow. some, there is some, there's some good there, but uh, but but in the time that I, we're talking about now, like 10, 15 years ago, no, it was just people would decide, oh, this works for seventy percent of the people, good enough. Like, okay, I have you know, and uh, and w we were really no better because. Uh, I mean, there were definitely people in the Web Standards Project like Stephen Champion, who's great, who said everything should work for everybody. And he was the advocate for um, progressive enhancement. But I went through a period where I was like, no, you should have the latest version of Netscape or IE or, or the hell with you. Or you should have Firefox or the hell with you. I went through a period like that because, you know, I wanted everything to be awesome. Kind of like the, the kids now, right, that make stuff and... Uh, that you know you have to have javascript and you have to have a modern browser and and there's no fallbacks but mm -hmm. i you know to me there always have to be fallbacks to me no matter what you're making it has to there has to be some simple way of you know at, at at the very least there's a form where people can hit radio buttons you know so it's not fancy but there's that underlying it or there's content that i can read on my on my device because you know we all have smartphones, but uh, the people, the next two billion, the next billion users of the, of the web are, are going to have not so smartphones. They're going to have cheap phones that kind of get the web, but kind of don't. And it's going to be back to like what it was with browsers in the 90s. And the only way around that is going to be accessibility testing and basic HTML and then layering everything else on top of that. Okay. But that's, that's not what you asked, though. You asked why. Um, Definitely, the Web Standards Project was because uh, nobody was doing it, and the web was going to be just just turned to crap if if there were no standards. And a list apart was because I couldn't read what I wanted to read in the design magazines that were out there. So David Siegel had a magazine called High Five. It was great, but it was definitely it approached web design in terms of graphic design. This looks like a poster, this is fantastic. And they'd be like, yeah, but does it work? And is it accessible? And nobody's asking about that. And then there was WebMonkey, right? Which was great. It was from Hotwired and they were like, here's how to code stuff. And I'm like, that's great, that's really important. They have great tutorials, but they don't really think about design and they're not really thinking about content. So I wanted to do something for the hybrids like me, for people who, did a little, you know, weren't necessarily great at any of it, but did it all, right? Or And I wanted, to me, web design was a holistic thing. 
if you weren't concerned with the content, you were missing something. If you didn't think about the code, if you didn't understand code, you were missing something. If you didn't think about user experience, you were missing something. So a list apart was really a response to that. And other side projects I've done was either fun or because basically feeling a need, like okay. scratching my own itch. Cool, thanks, okay. We have a question from Adir Run that's kind of shot up to the top here with upvotes. So I wanna uh, ask you that next. What are the do's and don'ts from your perspective when trying to build a personal brand? Right, don't think about that too much is the biggest do, right, or the biggest don't. Um, you can get detached, You can your ego can get too important and you can, and this is, sounds funny coming from a guy who's always got this little blue beanie wearing avatar everywhere he goes. So I know that looks like I like I live in a house of paintings of myself or something, but I don't. It's just it just evolved. I think I think the biggest component of your personal brand isn't what it looks like, isn't what it isn't a set of words. It's the attitude that you have toward people. Like if you look at, there's a guy, Gary Vaynerchuk, and he's built this huge personal brand. And one of the things that he did was he responded to every social media post that he got. So if someone said something to him on Twitter, if he got 50 of those a day, if he got 50 uh, mentions a day, he would respond to them. If he got 500 a day, even if it was up till two in the morning, he would respond to them all. And that's how he built, as much as anything else that he did, as much as the content that he made, he actually connected in person with everyone who was remotely interested in him. And that made that ability to touch. It's like when a business has a touch point with a customer. That was how he did it. I'm not saying everyone has to do that. I'm saying that's how he did it. Um, I think I did mine by helping people. And that's a big part of my brand. Um, people used to write to me back. Again, you asked why. I, well, I'll tell the story in a minute, but but people would write to me and say, I'm having this problem with my website, blah, 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 blah. And I would write back and say, have you tried this? It didn't occur to me not to do that. It didn't occur to me to say, you know, I charge money for this or I'll be happy to consult for you or whatever. And I was shocked when I heard other people doing that. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? If you're a consultant, you're not supposed to give away all your time for free. I don't know what, but for whatever reason I did, I didn't have that many clients. <laughs> I felt I learned everyone I resp responded to. And so I've connected with a lot of people over the years. I'll meet people at a conference and they'll say, you won't remember this, but, but 15 years ago, I was baffled about a problem and I sent you a question and you, you took the time to write three paragraphs and a couple of links and a book recommendation. And, it, and, it, and then they tell me what it did for them. And that's, you know, that's priceless to me. I'm kind of a loner. In some ways, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit um, shy or wh what's the word for it where you enjoy your, I mean, I have definitely have friends, but I, I like my own company fine too. And okay. I'm fine. You know, when I was a kid, I was fine in a corner with a book or with a drawing pad. Right. Mm -hmm. So, but so in a way I connect with people in this other way and it really means a lot to me. Yeah. And I think when you, when you say that, I think you answer the question and you say, in a way, this question is lies within the question itself. What's the do's and don'ts of a personal brand? I think the most important to be personal. And when you say you Beautiful. answer personally <laughs> to each one. Beautiful. 
Beautiful. I think, uh, yeah, be yourself. I be think yourself. we got our own. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right. Um, by the way, just to, to say to everyone who's uh, listening with us here, um, if you have any questions or comments regarding the answer given at the moment, you can comment in the answer itself. See, they have a comment link, so you can just comment, meaning uh, if there's anything which is not clear or anything like that, just like comment on the question itself. All right, so um, shall we go on to the next question? Yeah, we have uh, we have another question here. Um, actually, let's jump to, we have a couple questions about books. And um, I don't remember if you mentioned at the beginning, but we all know that you're also uh, the publisher of A Book Apart. Um, so let's start with this one. Uh, as the publisher of A Book Apart, what suggestions and tips would you give to people with ideas to start writing a book? Okay, uh, that's a great question. I think um, one of the first things you should do well, if you, first of all, don't just do it to do it. Do it because you're inspired, because you have a great idea, mm -hmm. and you just, the same reason you do a project. It's like, nobody else is doing this, as far as I can tell, and it means a lot to me. I think I'm onto something. I want to share it with, I want to share with my community. Um, I would say one of the first things you should do, although this sounds awful, is like write a little marketing paper for yourself, saying like, I've looked in the field, and is anyone else doing this? Like if I were to do a thing right now that was uh, how to set type in CSS, mm -hmm. before I would write a book about that, I would go, has somebody else done that? And I would make sure that, you know, I would look and read everything out there and say like, okay, well, this seems like it's been pretty well covered by all these people or and all these websites like nice web type, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if, if I felt like I still had something unique to say, then I would say, okay, the reason I'm writing this is, and I'm going to focus more on that unique thing and spend less time introducing web fonts are some of because nobody needs that, right? Those books, that's already out there. Everybody knows that. So like, what's the unique thing that I have to say and who's it for, right? A lot of times people have a great idea uh, or it seems like a great idea, but I'll go, so is this for designers or developers? They don't know. And is it for someone who's pretty advanced? Right. Or uh, had a guy, you know, someone had a, an idea for a workflow. And at first it seemed like a great idea. But the more I looked at it, the more and, and looked at it with other people, the more it seemed like, you know, this is your workflow. And it seems like it works great for you. And I totally get why you want to share it. But it wouldn't. There's nothing really universal about this. And there's nothing special that specifically makes it necessarily better than some other workflow, right? Like, oh, interesting. Okay. So, so I think you need, uh, you need to be able to, here's another way of saying it. There's a, when people pitch a movie, they have what's called an elevator pitch or when they pitch a business. And this is why they have these terrible to see. It's like, you know, it's like Uber, but for chocolate or whatever, right? People do that or, or they'll go, this is like, uh, Harry Potter meets Dragon Lady, whatever, you know, people, but you should be able to do that with your book. It shouldn't just be, I'm writing about SVG. It should be, I'm writing about SVG in a way that's very practical for developers with like 10 things they can do now to immediately cut their bandwidth in half. Like that's a better, that's a better strategy. I also think if you're thinking of writing a book, uh, there's two things you need to do first. 
the first you need to go to meetups or any place that you or give and give a talk or give a talk at your company right you can just you know when i was at happy cog we used to do a thing where someone would say here's what i've been working on and here's what i've learned and other people would stand and, and listen to that and uh now in uh, Studio Zeldman and also Alista Par, we're using Basecamp 3, which has this nice feature of recurring questions. And you can set up, like, what did you learn this week? And it's a way of sharing. So the point is, share what you know with a group of people and see how they react. Don't get discouraged if they don't, like, love it as much as you do. And then the other thing is write articles. You can start by writing okay. it on your own blog, or you can write it, you know, Try to write it for a list apart or Smashing Magazine or another, you know, solid publication like that. But also, or just publish it yourself in Medium if you don't have a blog. But uh, you know, and just see how people react because if people are all over it, that's a sign that you're onto something. And if people are like, "Yeah, but," and you're like, "Okay, maybe this isn't the book idea," but I'll keep going. I think if you want to write a book, you will. Everyone who want, really wants to will, I think visualizing your goal is really important. It's always helped me. And everything that I've set out to do, I've been able to do, including some things I wish I hadn't done. Like my first wife going, I'm going to marry that woman. I wish I hadn't done that. But, but <laughs> visualizing, visualizing what you want, this sounds cheesy, but it really does help you get it. It does help you work to get it. It doesn't... It's not magic. It just helps you focus your work and your thinking. I don't know if did, is that a good answer. That's an excellent answer, and actually, it leads us right into the next question. You started to touch on it. Someone asked specifically. I've just started speaking at meetups and conferences. Any tips for those of us just starting out speaking? Yep. Okay. Um, I'm not going to tell you the one where to think of them all wearing their underwear, but do remember that they're just people. Um, start with small groups. Start with shorter talks if you can. Sustaining okay. people's interest for an hour is very hard. It's something you work up to. Um, really only very experienced uh, people are, are able to do that. And even at a lot of conferences I attend, there are people who take an hour and after 40 minutes they've lost me. So, and I'm, you know, and I'm compassionate and I really want to like every speaker. So I think uh, starting small is good. Start, you know, before you, uh, here's another thing. I used to think just improvise it because like as if you were Louis C.K. or something and could just make people laugh or anything. But I, I find that that's actually arrogant and it's good to rehearse. Uh, for some people, just write it all out in longhand like it's a book, like it's an article. And, and read that several times just so you have sets of words in your head and know what it is that you want to talk about. Everybody has a different way of getting to theirs. I mean, I used to just make big picture slides and know, oh, here I'm going to talk about this kind of stuff. But I find I do better when I rehearse. And like, there's nothing better than finishing an hour-long talk in that hour and not rushing through any part of it and not finishing 15 minutes early. There's really something to be said for rehearsal. So plan it. Think about what you'd want to hear. Start small. Start small. Start small in terms of length. Start small in terms of you know don't don't start by giving a topic uh, a talk about the history of typography because you're never going to get through that. But start with some you know give a ten minute talk on some technique that you've come up with. Right? Okay. 
and see how people react and just get comfortable with people. I used to be very scared. The first time I had to do public speaking with the Web Standards Project, I was with, um, uh, let's see, I was, I was with Jeff Bean, who later would go on to found Typekit, and George Olson, who was the first leader of the Web Standards Project. It was for Linda of lynda.com, but lynda.com didn't exist yet. She asked us to come speak about web technology at this big conference, and I stood behind Jeff Bean like saying as little as possible because I was so scared. Um, another One other thing, panels are a good way to get comfortable in front of people. Getting, standing up in front of people with a presentation is doubly risky because not only are you in front of people, but you also, you're hoping your presentation is good and it might not be, or it might be good, but you can't deliver it in a way that people connect with. So do a panel instead, a panel discussion where, you know, three people are going to talk about bandwidth. Three people are going to talk about web fonts. You can do this in your office, right? If you have, uh, if there's something that you guys have been, or folks have been talking about for a while and you have a disagreement about it, have a, choose a moderator and pick a discussion point and, and go for it. As you get more comfortable doing that, do that at a meetup. Say, we're going to have a panel about web type at a meetup. And, then you'll get more comfortable in front of people. I got very, I used to do panels at South by Southwest and they made me much more comfortable in front of crowds. Okay, great. And and uh, going on for like people that are more experienced in talking already have done a few talks. So the question is like, uh, so taking it up a level, um, how, how can I be, how can I, get tips on promoting myself to get more speaking uh, speaking opportunities and how can I stand out amongst the crowd? Those are great questions. Um, I think there are, I think it's like everything else. You ever notice like you'd be watching a movie and you go, that's really funny. And then you notice that they're in 50 other movies that you, you didn't even notice they were in. Like you go back and look at these other movies and go, oh yeah. <laughs> They've been in everything, yeah. but I never noticed them until this one, this one breakout role, and now I see that they've been steadily working. And then those people, after the breakout role, get lots of work. I think speaking works kind of the same way. You sort of work your way up in terms of, you know, venues. So you do like a free event. You do a free event for twenty minutes. You start doing more, longer talks. You start doing university, and uh, and you know, you do things that don't pay well or don't don't pay maybe uh i'm not suggesting it. i'm just saying i did that lots of people do that there's people who can't afford to pay but maybe they'll you know they have some other way of compensating you for your time um and eventually if you have a topic that is really interesting and you make people laugh and people are people will start publicizing you so you'll you'll look and you'll see in someone's Instagram, like you know, like Chris Coyer, uh, who just wrote SVG uh, uh, for uh, uh, his SVG book for a book apart. Um, he does a little bit of self publicizing, but mainly at this point, people go, "I just got this book; it's amazing," and they tweet about it, or or they retweet his picture, um, or they talk about a, something he's saying at a conference. So, at a certain point, you'll have fans that will help you publicize yourself. And that's the best because nobody really likes publicizing themselves, but never be ashamed of doing it either because 
you know, if you're a celebrity, then you have a publicist. But if you're a web developer, you don't. And if you're a designer, you don't. And you're competing with everybody else. It's the same way you compete to get design work. It's the same way you compete for gigs. It's like, be a little bit better, be a little bit faster, have a good attitude, be friendly. Um, that stuff matters too. If, if I have a choice between working with someone who always complains and someone who's equally good, who's very nice and says, thank you, this is a great assignment. I'm human, I'm gonna pick the person who says thank you. Not, I'm not be, trying to be a jerk, it's just, I'd rather be with happier people. Not in every case, but mostly. Um, when you speak, one other thing, you'll stand out more if you have a unique point of view. And you'll stand out less if you basically do high-level summaries about what everything that everybody else knows already. So if you give a long talk about, again, typography on the web and you try to cover all the bases, you're up against you're up against like people from Typekit. You're up against people from Font Bureau. You're up against type designers. You're up against masters. But mm -hmm. if you have a, a unique point of view about a specific topic on type design or using type on the web, all of a sudden you're not competing with those people. You're competing against yourself and you're, you're being, people are following you because you have a unique message, not because, you know, they're always going to say much other than Heffler was better than you. If you try to talk about type in a big general way, right, uh, then a type designer is going to kill you. But if you're talking about a specific thing, then the topic becomes the interest. The topic is a way of standing out. Ask yourself honestly, is this new? Have I heard this before? Okay, cool. Great answer. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Um, we have two. Two questions here that shot up to the top, and and this one I'm very interested to hear myself too. The top upvoted question right now is, what made you say yes to become a mentor in this program? Uh, well, three things. Uh, hacking UI is great. Uh, I read it. I read the newsletter every time it shows up in my inbox. I have never, un you know, usually you sign up for stuff and then you unsubscribe after a while, but I never do that. I get a lot of ideas. I get links to a lot of great stuff. So I wanted to give something back to these guys because they do a great job. Um, I, I love side projects. They're my favorite thing in design. Um, I, don't, I don't think I built my reputation with client work, although I try to really hard to do great client work. I think I built my reputation with side projects. So anyone who's interested in that and wants to do one, more power to you. I know it can be hard to find the time and the motivation. So if I can help, that's a great thing. And then the third thing is I just, uh, I really do uh, love teaching and mentoring and giving back and all that stuff. It makes you feel, you know, like you're somewhat useful. <laughs> to, so basically if someone asks me, can I help something? Unless it's like, a, you know, unless they say, can you fly across the world for a month for free, then you know, that's a problem. If they say, can you give me uh, 90 minutes of your time? I'm probably going to say yes. So, uh, yeah. Cool. Thank yeah. you. We, we really appreciate it. And I just so everyone is aware, by the way, I sent Jeffrey the email asking if he'd be interested in mentoring. And within, I think, 10 minutes later, he wrote back. He's like, yes, fuck yes, let's do this. Not even not even like any convincing needed, nothing. Like, hey, Jeffrey, yeah. like, oh, definitely, I'm in. So we, we really appreciate it. Yeah. It's something I, I think I, that. Uh, mm -hmm. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I was just gonna say something. I, I mean, Sagi and I were both, you know, almost shocked by your like, 
you know, we thought, okay, maybe we can really convince him, you know, maybe he'd like it, but no convincing needed and just total willingness to help in any way. So just so everyone's well, aware, by the way. Okay, well, thank you. I mean, I got it. It's, I probably should have asked, what does this entail? <laughs> <laughs> That's for all I know. But I was like, yeah, I was like, yeah, this seems great. Uh, is there, uh, yeah, I think that answered the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and just uh, I think that's something that's also I, I mean the vibe that we get from you is that uh, you've experienced our project success and now you want to share your knowledge with everyone and and like exactly like you said you want to uh, you love teaching and you love to give back and that's something that's uh, you know kind of a core value with you Jeffrey it's a, something that I saw. definitely so this is a weird story but I have to share it I mentioned it earlier yeah. I saw Tom Cruise tell this story, so it's already very weird. <laughs> but, uh, Tom Cruise, and he was talking about Scientology, so and why he likes Scientology. So take that part out. <laughs> <laughs> but here's what he said. He said, you're driving along the highway, and you see that there's been a car accident, and uh, the person in the car needs help. I'm hearing an echo. Do you hear an echo? Um, uh, on our end, I think it's okay. Yeah. Um, hmm. Any better? Let me see. Okay. This is good. So, so you're driving along and you see that the person needs help, but uh, you're not a doctor, but there's no one else around. You're in this deserted highway. So you have to go open the door and help the person even though you're not the perfect person to do it, even though you're not a doctor. That thing stuck with me. I'm getting that echo again. Damn. Let me mute our end, just in case it's coming. Okay. Now I can't hear you, though. Tell me if that's better when we mute, and then I'll... Oh, okay. Yes, now there's no echo. That's perfect. Okay, so yeah, so I, I think the idea of giving back is just like, it just feels like something you have to do uh, because you're the person that happened to be on the road and happened to see the accident. And yes, like when we started the Web Standards Project, I was first, wow, there's so many smarter people than me and so many better developers than me. I really, I'm not the, uh, I'm not the right person for this gig, but ultimately other people weren't stepping up to do it and then it becomes, well, but it's in front of me. It fell in my lap, and I'd be foolish not to do this because it's important. I don't really feel I can say no to this. Like, what what more important thing was I going to do today? Nothing. So I'll do this. So, yeah, that. Cool. Cool. I come, man. Um, so on that note of learning from you and from helping others, can you tell us a professional failure that taught you a lesson and made you better? Yeah. Um, oh, you have to mute now. Okay. Uh, this has happened many times. I've had many, many failures. Um, let's see. In client services, I once had to fire a client. He was just not the right client for me. And I knew before we ever took the gig that he was not the right client for me. My gut kept saying, there's something off about this. This is not going to work for you. Not that he was a bad person, but just 
our personalities don't mesh. Like, I'm kind of impulsive, as I think you know, in that you said, would you like to mentor? I was like, fuck yes. This guy was afraid to commit to the relationship of, it wasn't a whole lot of money at stake. I like, I immediately committed to him. Like, I love your product. I love what you do. I'd like to help you get, get more. I, it, it was a, a commerce site. It was like, I'd like to help you sell more of your product. I'd like to help you get more fans. I know how to do that. We're going to do a terrific job and I've got a great team ready to go. And I kept bringing team members and meeting with them. And by the fourth meeting where he still wasn't ready to commit, not at a, uh, I, my gut instinct was like, walk away. And, you know, it wasn't like, if he's not ready for me after four, I'm leaving. It's not like that. But it's like, if he doesn't know and we know, then he's going to be indecisive generally. And that's going to bite us later down the road. He's going to rethink every decision. Every time he gives us a yes, he's going to rethink it halfway on to the next deliverable. And that's going to bite us. I knew it, but I really liked his product. I wanted to believe that we could make it work. I wanted a gig, right? So, and sometimes you take a gig because you need a gig. There was a little of that to be sure, but, but I just, and, and sure enough, Three quarters of the way through the project, he started panicking when he realized we were going to hand it off. And he started uh, not, although I thought we'd been very clear and we'd been very explicit about what we were and weren't building for him, like we were making templates and we were installing them and then his content person was going to put in the content. He was somehow under the impression that we were hand making every page on his website. And yeah, so that wasn't true. And when I tried to explain, well, here is where, you know, we had this conversation. Do you remember? And remember this one? And, and then he started like thinking I was tricking him. And then he started rethinking everything. And at a certain point I said, I'm, you know, we're going to, we're going to over deliver for you. I've never had an unhappy client. I don't want you to be the first, you know, if, if I fail to communicate somehow that's on me. So we'll do everything we can to make you happy. And here's 12 things you're not paying us to do that we're just going to do, but then we'll be done and you pay us the rest of the money. And he said, I said, okay. He said, okay. I said, great. So just sign this contract saying that when we do these 12 free things, you'll write this check and he wouldn't sign the contract. And I said, if you're, if you're not planning to trick us, like we're not planning to trick you, I'm committing in writing. Here's all the stuff we're going to do that you're not even paying for. We're very happy to do it because we want you to be happy. Will you sign that you'll pay us the rest of our fee? He wouldn't. I said, I, I have no choice now. I have to, we have to go our separate ways. And uh, and then I still, I had freelancers. I still had to pay them. And I was worried, like, am I going to lose my home? Like, how is this going to work? I was really scared and really upset. And so I've learned a bunch of stuff like have a better contract, have a lawyer look over your contracts uh, and use use a contract, you don't have to do it every time, but have a lawyer look over, your, a good lawyer look over your first contract and then use that as a template for all your subsequent contracts. Um, have, have Now we build into the contracts ways that we can both save face if we have to walk away, if either party has to walk away. If, if they decide they don't want to keep working with us, that's fine too. Uh, and they don't have to keep paying us. Like there's, we build in all that stuff so that, uh, 
So there's no humiliation, no finger pointing, no anger, no shock. Um, and, you know, and then the other thing is trust my gut. And if, if I get the feeling that someone's not going to be right to work with, I say no. And I just, we just started Studio Zeldman like, I don't know, two months ago and got an incredible request for proposal from an incredible client and like so much, uh, just so much work, so much money. It looked like the most amazing project, a really prestigious client. And I decided not to pitch it because my gut told me this is going to derail my plan to build this studio. My plan to build this studio is that we start small and take on small projects one after another and build a portfolio. And if we, um, if we say yes to this, on the off chance that we get it, there's still a very good chance we'd pitch it and not get it. But if we got it, this is all we could work on for the next three years. And that would shape this new company. And I didn't leave my old company, you know, the, the security of my old company. I didn't leave the security of my old company to have someone dictate how my new company is going to be shaped up. So even though this is a great client, I'm not ready for it. Five years from now, I might be ready. I might have a team that could work on something for three years. Right now, I don't. So again, trust your gut. Uh, and so I feel like I learned the lesson from last time and I, you know, I, I cried a little bit. I mean, I was like, I was looking at like, I looked at all the bills that we have and how this project would pay those bills if we got it. And I looked at all the work we could do and I was like, oh, is there any way we can do this? But at the end of the day, it would derail us. So no. So I learned to trust my gut. Cool. Right, unmuted. Cool. Really nice story. Yeah, yeah, totally. And uh, I could so much relate to that because I, I bet all of us, like who were freelancers, had those, you know, clients who came in and the kind of like gut feeling that no, it's not a good, it's not a good client. And so it's a, it's a great answer. Uh, trust your gut feeling and have a better contract. I think the, the answer in, in totally free. Yeah. Um. Okay. On to the next question. We have, who were your most memorable mentors along your way? Wow. A lot of really good ones, although not on the web, because I I don't have any mentors on the web, per se, because I started so early on the, the web. But uh, I had, like, my first one was an English teacher in high school. He... Uh, he defended me when the school vice principal thought I had stolen something. They thought I had stolen a blind boy's tape recorder. My oh. friend, my friend had stolen a tape recorder from the school and he didn't know that the tape recorder belonged to a blind boy who used it to take notes. So that makes it such an, un it wasn't just stealing from the school. It was stealing from a blind boy. It doesn't get worse than that. And, and the vice principal, knew that we hung out and basically wanted to kick us both out. And this teacher said, I know Jeffrey, he wouldn't do this. And based on that, he saved me, which was amazing. This teacher read a Hemingway book um, called, what was this? Uh, it, it's uh, The Sun Also Rises. Maybe. Okay. Yeah, about uh, expatriates and uh, 
the main this is such a Hemingway story. The main character, Jake, uh, had his penis blown off in World War One. So other than that, he's fine. And so the government gives him like five thousand dollars, like sorry about that. <laughs> right. And he's and he spends most of the book getting drunk in various parts of Europe with a beautiful woman that he's in love with and his friend that she's going to marry if she just would stop cheating on that friend by sleeping with like matadors and all these other people and just all these people. And, and so it's really a book about a lost generation after world war one and about drinking and but in the very end of the book, um, Jake is sitting in a cab with the woman he loves who he's never going to marry because of his injury. And they're thrown together for a moment because the cab makes this turn and she rushes against him and she turns and it's a sexual moment and she turns to him and says we could have had such a nice life together Jakey and he says isn't it pretty to think so that's the last line of the book isn't it pretty to think so and this guy this English teacher had tears in his eyes and I was like oh my god this man is crying like I didn't my dad didn't cry right my dad had reasons to cry but he didn't cry and here was this man in front of a whole room of people being really emotional about a, a work of art. And admittedly, when I think about it, it's kind of a weird work of art and crying because a guy got his dick blown off is, is a little strange, but, but I really loved that English teacher because uh, he just, he showed me that it was okay to really respond to art and to be emotional about it and to be emotional in front of people. And that was fine. And then uh, I had creative directors when I was in advertising, um, just some really, really wonderful ones. Uh, uh, the, I'm gonna go with uh, Sal DeVito because he was like, this guy had so many awards. You could, you could fill a room with the awards he'd won. He, uh, he was a classic Brooklyn Italian American art director from a certain generation he had like a huge American flag on his wall. He had long white hair parted down the middle. He was five feet tall or less and had a high voice like this. And uh, I think was albino. And he was the kind of guy that if he hadn't been Sal DeVito, other guys would have made fun of him. But people, he just struck awe and fear into your heart. I mean, he was brilliant and he took no shit. And uh, the first time I presented to him, I was used to working at bad agencies where you had to show your work and explain it to the creative director. So I started explaining to this guy, this multiple award winner, what my concept was, right? I'm like showing him my comp and going, you see, and he like listened to me for a while and he said, I don't know whether you're fucking with me or you think that you need to explain how advertising works to me. I got a room full of trophies back there says I know more about it than you do and I don't ever have to listen to you again. And then he left the room and I was like, fuck. So I learned a lot. I learned a lot. Uh, and he never would tell you you've done something good. He would just smile a little if you did something good. And mostly he would just quickly flip past your work. He taught at School of Visual Arts, which is where I teach now. And he okay. taught there for years. In fact, he may still teach there. What he was famous for, like breaking people's portfolios over there, over his knees, so people would bring in their work, and he would look at it and just go. He thought it was shit. He would literally break it and throw it in the garbage. Well, like people would like maybe spend a hundred dollars laminating one ad. He would break it in half, and he'd go, 
if you want, you know, you can leave now and keep your portfolio, or you can, or I can throw the whole thing away and turn you into an art director. But he was like, he was, hard he was exactly the opposite of me because I'm kind of a, I look for people who already know what they're doing and then I just encourage them gently. But uh, but he was a great creative director. And uh, Noel Dross, uh, Drossman was another one. He was a copywriter. And this guy, um, he never stopped working and he was never satisfied if the clock like and uh dominic marino another one that they worked at doyle dane bernbach this huge agency in the 70s uh huge creatively sorry not a big agency but they're the it's the company that did the volkswagen ads they worked there right the famous volkswagen ads and like dominic had done one where uh a guy had a gas pump to his head like like, like a gun like they'd done these famous ads and they were just uh I would say, how did you sell this to school? What was it like to have such a great client? And they'd say, oh, they were terrible clients. We had to just keep, like, they would throw out, like, the fantasy that we had was the guy did a great ad and the client bought it. The truth was, guy did a great ad, client hated it. Did another great ad, client hated it. Did another great ad, client hated it. So they taught me this work ethic. I don't always live up to it. I don't always live up to it. These, these guys were amazing, but they would never get discouraged by a tough client, they would just keep taking another another run at it, and I think, I I mean I have trouble with my own frustration levels, but I think if you can keep being enthusiastic and keep coming at something, you know, uh, you can do great work, and I learned that from them. Cool, cool. Um. I want to go back to books for a second. We have a question down here about what books had the most impact on you and why. Um, aside from uh, The Sun Also Rises, uh, any other books that you really, uh, I don't know, made an impact on you? Yes. So um, I publish really, really. Oh, can you mute again? I'm sorry. I'm getting that feedback yeah. loop again. Sorry about that. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, Steve Mulder is a guy who wrote a book about CSS before any browser supported it. That book had a huge impact on me. This was like 1996. And it showed what CSS was going to be capable of doing. And he had to like construct his own examples. Right? And say, this is what I think it means. I got so excited by that technology. I get so excited by the idea that you could do I hate to say it, but print-like design on the web after all the hacks that I've been doing. Uh, and I loved that book. I bought um, Linda Weinman's first few books. Again, lynda.com is the company. Well, she just sold it to uh, LinkedIn, who I think just got acquired by somebody else, too. I was, Microsoft, right? Microsoft, right. So basically, now I'm waiting for some whale to buy, to buy Microsoft. But it is like this, you know. But Linda, before she sold her company for a billion dollars, she started as just like a young freelance author and art director who thought web design was cool. And she wrote these books like Designing Web Graphics. And I devoured that stuff. And you know, it's funny, I have a, in my conference, I'll like, Laura Hogan, who's great, was making this presentation. And as part of it, she was talking about how to, you know, make 
if you must use GIFs, how to make sure that they have the least bandwidth and things to do with JPEGs and stuff. And I was like, this is all new to the pe most of the people in the room. But Linda Weinman was talking about this stuff in 1996, 1997 in her book, like, like blur most of the image because people don't notice, right? As long as the human face is in focus, if the shirt's out of focus, nobody will notice and you say bandwidth that way. There was like so many tricks. Uh, certain styles there was even a diagonal line style that was really popular on the web in like the late 90s early 2000s that was based on the fact that a gif image or gif if you prefer uh likes diagonal like compresses best with, with these diagonal lines right so basically we made up a style that used the compression algorithm of 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 the graphic interchange format um and David Siegel, David Siegel's book, uh, Designing Killer Websites, just blew me away. This guy was a, a type designer, a graphic designer, five, six other things, really creative guy, diarist. Uh, and he'd written this book basically about bringing graphic design to the web. And yes, it used a lot of hacks, right? Table layouts and hacks, but it, the results were fantastic. And I copied that stuff and my first websites were all like, table layouts and anything I could do to like try to control type. And I didn't really care about semantics or anything. I didn't know any better. Nobody did. So, you know, I would use font tags and all that crap. Um, those books were still the most influential on me to this day because they were the first things I read about web design. Oh, and uh, the first book I read about HTML, which is by uh, my friend Jen whose last name I am blanking on because I suck. But she wrote this book about HTML and it was fantastic. And, you know, it was like there were 12 tags and I learned them all, you know. Cool. And and any books that you read recently that are, um, I mean, I guess people ask that because they want to read the same books that, that influenced you. I guess CSS books from 1996 are, you know, a, a bit less. Um, less accessible. Uh, yeah, that's accessible and, and well, you know, they won't uh, have the same effect. But do you think you have any books that you read recent, in recent years that other people in this program could read and be influenced as well? I, how do I say this and not sound like uh, a salesman? I think all the A Book Apart books, for one thing, uh, we very carefully curate them and we're trying to make uh, a library for web designers and anything that we put out it's been really carefully vetted and like it has you know i've read it like five times and uh we try to get like really important stuff very sharply focused not a huge book with everything but like a sharply focused book like the research book is just enough research by erica hall they're all really good writers i think those books are really good um, a lot of the Rosenfeld media books are really good. Um, uh, the uh, O'Reilly publishes really good books uh, about technology. They're they're sort of bigger and more comprehensive, but uh, you know they're fantastic. Um, and then I read a lot of uh, websites. I really love reading websites, and I, I you know. I have limited attention span now, and a website is just right. An article on a website is just right. Don't before I get all. distracted. Yeah. Didn't didn't used to be. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. when I was younger, I would sit and read like War and Peace 
Yeah. Now I, I can't. I have all these books that I start. I have like all these unfinished books. Yeah, I guess now with Medium and the publications out there, it's way more easier for everybody to express themselves. And people are starting to write quality stuff and, you know, long form articles that you can read like forever. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ah, we, we actually have an interesting question here. Uh, it's a little it's down at the bottom, but I want to ask this because it's kind of related to the long form content journalism on the web. What's your point of view on today's online journalism and the business model basically selling ads behind it? Will this model last? Yeah, this is a really, really big, big Can you can you mute again? I'm sorry. Sorry. Yeah, one sec. You know, the first the first uh, thirty minutes we were we were fine. I don't know why the feedback loop happened, but anyway, um, I think this is the million dollar question, and I don't know the answer to it. I I hoped at one time, like um, there's a, an ad network called the Deck that Jim Kudal of Kudal Partners and uh, Jason Fried of Basecamp and I started in the early 2000s and it's one small ad on the page and a bunch of white space around it and the ads are vetted which means it's something that you'd be interested in like if you're reading Daring Fireball it's an ad that you as a Mac person would find interesting and we don't track Right? There's no JavaScript code to track people. So the advertiser says, tell me more about the demographics of the people. Say, Sorry, can't. But, but we pick publications. We can tell you what kind of people read these publications. Right, This is for designers and entrepreneurs and web people. So if you're interested in those people, we have them. And that was like one experiment. And a couple of other companies sprang up that did the same thing. And I thought maybe that would work. I even uh, I had an an advertising publication that I redesigned the site for, and I tried to convince them to uh, go with the deck instead of all their mil millions of ads, and they didn't because basically their millions of ads at the time were making them more money than the deck would, and that's the problem. And then the pro the problem intensified as the advertiser said, "Well, we're not going to pay so much." So it starts racing to the bottom and the advertisers are paying less and less and less and wanting more and more and they want more tracking and they want, you know, a lower CPM. And so now you have these publications that have, they look like NASCAR race cars, right? With all these banners all over them that distract you from reading, that make the reading experience terrible. And yet even that's not paying for the newspaper. And so like all these newspapers are closing or laying off staff. Journalism is really important. I mean, the world is crazy, and there's lots of politicians that are not trustworthy. And there's, you know, if you only get your news from, uh, only hear what politicians want you to hear, that's a bad idea. And you won't be a very well-informed citizenry, and it's very hard to have a democracy. So we really need journalists, but advertising isn't paying. And for most publications, people still aren't willing to pay. Um, I have friends who had a product called Readability. It's still out there. Readability uh, would let you save articles. I use it. You use it. Okay, cool. So Rich Ziotti, my friend who now uh, co-founded Postlight, uh, a New York studio with, um, with Paul Ford. Uh, Rich Ziotti at the time was uh, the founder of Arc Naive. 
and he started this and then his team developed it the rest but he's he's an interesting guy too because he's this is so classic web he's a lawyer his background was he's a really good developer his background was as a lawyer i know so many designers and coders who didn't study design and code and i think it's really cool i, I love that about our field anyway rich noticed that the you know that you couldn't read stuff and it sucked and his friend uh He'd already seen Instapaper, right? And he was friends with uh, Marco, the guy who did Instapaper. And he said, well, maybe we could make something like this and it would remove the ads. But since we're taking away the income from the publication, we would pay the publication. Instead, we would have people basically pay a monthly subscription fee. And then, so if you spent 50% of your reading time on the New York Times and 50% on Daring Fireball. Half your monthly subscription will go to Daring Fireball and the other half to the New York Times, just as a simplistic example. They had this algorithm, they figured out where you were, and they sent money to all these publications. But it didn't work out very well because uh, people weren't ready for it. And some people took offense and they said, you can't collect money on my behalf without my knowing and blah, blah, blah. So basically, it, they got kind of pushed out of the arena, which is sad because their goal was to find another way to pay for, for written publications. So I don't know. And, you know, the New York Times has a paywall. A couple of publications have a paywall. Um, the ones that do it well, you can read a certain number of articles and then they let you know, hey, you've read five free articles, you have five more left, and here's what it costs to subscribe, and you make the decision. Not an ideal experience, but it's it, it's a possibility. The, a lot of publications are doing firewalls badly, so they have these pop-ups and takeovers, and you know, the New York Times lets you read without interrupting you, right? And after a certain point, you get a little notice, but you can still read. Um, these There's publications I mean, I, I used to follow links from one of my favorite design. I subscribed to a design newsletter, and I used to follow their links. But when they went to their own publication, there was always this big takeover. And I've stopped reading them. I, and it's sad because I'm sure I would learn things about design. And I love design. But I'm not going to keep supporting a publication that does this. So I don't know what the answer is yet. I'm, I'm going to be speaking... Uh, Later this month in New York or next month at a, uh, a conference Roger Black is organizing about cases uh, are going and, and how to make that work. Um, but honestly, I feel frustrated and baffled that so many things we've tried either didn't work out or people weren't willing to try them, and I don't really know what to do. I know that spyware is not the answer. But <laughs> Yeah, um, and... You know, I, I really can connect also with what you're saying. And I think that, have you seen Brad Frost's uh, talk about Don't Be Evil? No, I haven't seen that one, but I, I know what he's talking about. Yeah, so it really says, like, when it pop up, when you go to read an article and before you even start reading, a pop-up jumps in your face. It's like somebody just literally got out of the computer and punched me in the face. <laughs> and it, yeah. it's so true. Yes. Um, and... Absolutely. And, or it's like you walk into a store and someone's trying to take your credit card. Yeah. You're like, wait, I haven't even looked at, I haven't even looked at what you have to offer yet. Totally. Yeah. I hate those things. Yeah. I hate those things. They're anti-user. They're totally anti-user. They're anti they're Um So uh, there was one, one session with the, uh, in the Pat Flynn podcast, uh, SPI, that I don't remember whose guest 
who guessed who who what guest it was, but they were talking about um, something that we like David and I really think about nowadays, which is if you're if someone lands on our website right now, they have to understand in like three seconds: are we givers or are we takers? And that's something that we're treating in the first lesson of the of, of this program actually, which is uh, going on today. But um, it's it's something that I think every publication should think about and. We should preach it out to everyone. I mean, I should come to a publication and say, are you a giver or a taker? And I, that's what I want like to everyone in this program also to think when they're pu putting out blogs and their own publications. I love that. That's very simple. Giver or taker. And it sh sh should give. Yeah. You should give and give and give. And then, and then at a certain point say, hey, can you help out? Yeah. I hope you're enjoying this. Help me out. Totally. Yeah. Cool. Jeffrey, how are we doing on time? I know we're way, we're already at seventy five minutes. You you have to run, or can we answer uh, a few more questions? Ask a few more questions. Absolutely. Okay, we can do kind of like a lightning round if you got to get out of here. I um, okay. the top voted question right now is, uh, what tips can you give to people who are just starting out as writers, um, and where should they focus their energy? And I want to add on that uh, specifically that you I noticed that you focus a lot of your energy on Twitter. Would you recommend that to other people, or why specifically Twitter? Great. Okay. Um, so first of all, I think if you're starting out as a writer, uh, give yourself the uh, the discipline of give yourself a check-in, like you would with anything else. Give yourself like a say. All right, every day from six a.m. to seven a.m. before my kids wake up, I'm going to write, or every day during lunch hour to this week, I'm going to write, or. Three times a week I'm going to write, once a week I'm going to publish. Give yourself some deadlines, otherwise it gets shoved to the bottom of the pile, right? Because client work, in-house work will take over and you'll never write. Give yourself a time of day, especially an untroubled time of day, or, or stay late, right, when everyone leaves. The hardest time to write is what, during the, the day when people are constantly trying to drag you into meetings. So... Avoid that and find a time that works for you. Now, where where you should focus? Um, it really depends on you. If you you know, I think one thing that would work if you don't have, let's say let's say you're doing your writing on Medium, and you're tweeting, and your Twitter account is connected to your Medium account. You build a following on Twitter, and then basically those folks follow you over to Medium automatically. Um, those two things are interconnected. So that is one way to build a following. Um, some people use, I mean, people use different platforms for different things. Uh, you could focus all your, you know, all your energy in a daily Tumblr. You could focus all your, it really, in a, in a WordPress blog. I mean, it really depends. I use a lot of Twitter in a way that I used to use my own website. So 50, Ten years ago, you'd go to Zelman.com and there was this list of links and interesting things that I found on the web and my write-ups about them. And there weren't that many people doing what I was doing and there weren't that many people writing about web design links and it made sense and that was a place and people would actually go there. Nowadays, people go to Twitter. So that's where I put the stuff. And I also put it on Facebook. Um, the Facebook and Twitter are different audiences and I rate the things differently, but basically I use those two streams. Anything that I write, I write on Zeldman.com, and then I repost it at Medium. 
because again, different audience. Okay, on the, on this topic, I want to if we can get into this a little more technically. We've heard a lot of mixed reviews about this. From the SEO standpoint, we hear that duplicate content is bad, and you'll get the penalty on your own blog. But like you said, you have a different audience on Medium and kind of an outside audience. So, do you have any thoughts on this? If the reposting is is worth it, or I haven't heard. I expected there to be SEO penalties. And I've heard people saying there must be SEO penalties, but I haven't actually seen any evidence of SEO penalties, especially if, and I haven't experienced it. My feeling is, my guess, I could be totally wrong, my guess, just a guess, is that if you're trying to be tricky and double posting and triple posting, Google's smart enough to find that. But if you actually acknowledge this was originally published in such and such a place on Medium and then linked back to the original. If you, cr if you cross-link the two, I think Google gets or somebody at Google made the decision and told the engineering team, yeah, that's, that's legitimate. Um, to me, Medium is one way of doing orbital content, right? It used to be that you could put something on your website and then sit back and wait for the world to come read it. And people actually did that. It sounds comical now, but people did that. People would come to my website, and I could put like a splash page up on uh, April Fool's Day, and people would click into it and laugh, and then they'd come to it. It doesn't work that way now, right? It doesn't work that way now. In fact, when you say people go to Medium, basically what you're saying is they get a newsletter for Medium that tells them what their friends are reading. But they, people don't even, it's not like anyone goes to medium.com, per se, and, and drills down. So um, I don't know if I if I find out there is an SEO penalty. Of course, uh, I will probably write about that. But uh, I know that a bunch of writers are doing it. Um, I've talked to the folks at Medium about it. Um, you can also do another. I know that like Adactio, Jeremy Keith writes everything at his at Adactio.com first, then republishes um, to get that other to get that content in front of people who aren't going to go to his website. Um, there's another way of doing it. We're thinking about like you could, for instance, you guys could do it where your site is where you put all your links and promotions. And maybe if you write a thoughtful essay, you publish that on medium so that you use medium as a side publication. That's another way. Actually, the way that we're kind of, or I'm playing around with now. And I think uh, Sigi a little bit too is, and we don't know if this is work, working. This is totally an experiment that we're trying, but it's kind of more that if the topic is specifically, you know, design, development, side projects, uh, productivity, entrepreneurship, it's going on hacking UI. And if it's a very personal topic um, where we're writing, you know, first person, totally like our own experience that's not, that's only tangentially related or not as related, then putting it on medium. Um, that makes sense. That's, that's really good. But, but again, it's an experiment trying it and, and seeing. The other thing I wanted to ask you about with medium though is, you you have ways to kind of um, collect emails and do other things to promote you know the other stuff on your site, but it's not as good as having it on your own site. Having you know, a sign up form or having links to things that you other you know articles you want people to read and kind of having more control. Um, do you fear that you're losing some people that would be on your own site to reading it on Medium instead? Absolutely, I'm sure I am, but they're reading my content. Is how I look at that. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it as a win that my contact content is connecting with humans, and everything else is a bonus, and not, 
Yes, it used to be. It used to be they would come to my site, read it, and they would look in the footer and they would see links to all the other stuff I was doing. Or they'd look in the sidebar earlier in earlier times if they looked there. But nobody looks in those places anymore. So I don't know what I've done. Uh, I've got studio.zeldman has links to all the other stuff. There's links to all the other stuff in the footer at, 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 at zeldman.com. And I'm now signing all my articles at Medium with a little paragraph that says Jeffrey Zeldman is a designer at, and I link to a couple of things. So as Medium doesn't push your bio, right? Medium, Medium lets you link to your bio in the articles, but it doesn't. And, you know, at a list apart, we always have, we end an article and, and have a author written bio that says, you know, what's important to that person. So I'm doing that on Medium mechanically by copying and pasting it, uh, but it's fine. I think that helps offset some of the damage. And the truth is, uh, you know, I mean, when you're if you're trying to attract readers, there, uh, if you're trying to attract readers, then you're then it's your writing that matters, and not all the side projects. By the way, Danielle Bailey, Danielle Bailey, you're quite right. Jen Robbins wrote the book, uh, the HTML book that I read in like. 1945 or whatever that was back then. And yes, absolutely. Uh, why I forgot Robbins, I don't know. Jen Robbins, my friend Jen Robbins. Mm -hmm. Jen Robbins wrote a great HTML, and she's like writing like the 17th edition of it now or something. I just talked to her. She's, she's uh, that book, you know, like Designer Web Standards, my book, it, like it's had three editions. That's pretty cool. This lady's book is just like, it's crazy. It's been revised so many times. So yes, thank you, Danelle Bailey, Jen Robbins. Sorry, sorry, Jen Robbins. Okay. Um, I, I have another question and you can answer this as detailed as you want. Uh, but one thing that we're really like, like talking about in the program is kind of people are doing side projects and we're, we're hoping that they're doing something they're passionate about and something that uh, they really enjoy doing, uh, but they also want to make money out of it. So I'm curious with all of your side projects going on, and again, only get into as much detail as you want. You don't have to get into numbers if you don't want to, but um, where, like, what percentage of income is coming from what place and what um, what side projects are making, you know, are you making money off of and other side projects or um, income streams that are really supporting you? Just so people have an idea of how, I don't know, they can their side projects can support them. Sure, that's a great question. Um, can you mute? Thank you. Okay. Um, so first of all, I suck at that, right? And that was never my main motivation. And I'm sure all the projects could be doing better financially if, uh, like I had fewer people working on them and paid those people less and all that stuff. But I, I like to think that projects that people get involved in, that they, that they help other people too, that, that the people who are working on them get paid and all that. And I'm very happy about that. So a list of part basically pays for itself. Um, if I could pull it out of my ass, if I could do it without the people, or if the people work for free, it would be pretty profitable. But, uh, How but then, how many people do you have? And, and what, um, and what kind of people? I think like 12 now we've got, uh, three full, full time's the wrong word. We'll get three tech editors, 
uh, and uh, a part-time accessibility tech editor and a lazy tech editor who tried to resign, but I wouldn't let him, but said, please stop paying me. And I said, okay, who almost never contributes, but that one time that we need him, it'll be great to have him. Um, they're like some of the smartest people I know in the business, right? Uh, um, Anna Debenham and Rachel Andrew, and I'm seeing now I'm gonna be, okay, hang on, hang on. I will tell you everything. Go to elizabeth.com and go to uh, write for us. This is going to wait a second. Go to the masthead. Uh, we've got a managing editor. We've got three editors Rose Weisberg, Karen Litherland, and Belinda Hewland. We've got three tech editors Ian Van Hoof, Rachel Andrew, and Anna Debenham, plus Matt Mark. Marquis occasionally and Andrew Kirkpatrick occasionally. We've got uh, a technical director, Tim Murtaugh, and a production manager, Aaron Lynch, and a developer, Michelle Condu. We have Eric Meyer technically, theoretically on staff in that if we do another, uh, he works on special projects and he did the semantics on the previous version. We have a whole bunch of then contributing writers. Now, all those people are staff in quotes because they're basically freelance consultants, but they do a certain amount of work every month for a certain amount of money. Um, I'm going to speculate. Uh, I know that we don't, we don't advertise the same way Smashing Magazine does, and we don't make near what they make with advertising. But, um, and, and, you know, and I don't think we publish as frequently either. I mean, there's lots of, it's kind of apples and oranges and there's nothing wrong with what they do. I'm just saying, saying I know that we do less. The conference and event apart, uh, it has a lot of revenue, like millions of dollars, but it also has millions of dollars in expenses. Um, it makes a profit and this, Staff are paid very well. The speakers are paid very well. The people eat very well. The food's very good. Like we do everything at a certain caliber. Um, we have a producer, Toby Molina. Toby, she's a girl. And uh, we have uh, Marcy Eversol, who's uh, our event planner. And these people, they do something very well or they don't do it at all. When Eric and I started that conference, we co-founded it 10, well, a little over 10 years ago. Um, we were doing it basically out of, uh, you know, we, we were we, we were doing it on the fly and on the cheap. We would do it like in a movie theater in Austin or at a, uh, you know, a, co a conference room at a, at a sports arena or, you know, and, and it was it was like one day event and we had a local caterer and we, you know, but, it was fine for what it was. It was like we were trying it again, just like I said, start small with speaking. We started small with our conference, but once a year and a half or so had gone by and we realized there's really an audience that's hungry for this stuff. We hooked up with Marcy and Toby. Toby, I mean, I've never worked with people like this, like this. They're so professional and it kind of ruins me for anywhere else I speak. Like I know 
There's not going to be any technical problem. If there is, it's going to get resolved instantly. I know that the food's going to be amazing, that I know in advance, like the speakers know who's going to pick them up and where they have to be, and everybody knows everything. It's very, very clear. They're a really great team. And we uh, pay them commensurately with their greatness. And so um, if this were the best year in conferences, then, you know, then this would be a chunk of my income for sure. I think most of my income right now is coming from the studio that I just started. Um, I have no, eh, eh, you know what? The conference does very well. The conference does very well. Um, eh, but the expenses are very high and the risks are very high and you have to work up to those. Um, when we first started doing hotels, and we first signed a contract that said we guarantee, basically, we guarantee to pay this hotel $300,000 a year from now, whether anyone shows up or not. That's pretty scary because okay. if, if you don't sell tickets, it's like, okay, can I sell my home? Like, you know, it's, it's really scary stuff. Um, it's, and it never really stops being scary. There, there have been years where we were doing so fantastically that we didn't have to advertise and we sold out every show almost instantly. And uh, now it's tight, tougher. There's more conferences like ours competing with ours. There's more options. Uh, more people are doing videos, right? Are, are learning from videos and saying, I won't go to a conference this year. So, you know, it's tough and we fight for every customer. We fight for every dollar, but, uh, but it's a good fight. It's a fight worth having and the show's fantastic. The show's fantastic. It keeps getting better. Every time I attend, which is every show, eight times a year, I learn something and it's better. And so, uh, and then a, a book apart, you know, it does very well for the authors. It's a really good publication. Um, we also, you know, books are expensive too, you find out. If we were doing only virtual books, it would still be expensive because we have a lot of editors and a lot of people to, you know, we have book designers. We have, we have really talented folks who do this work and then we got it. We pay them. So yeah. And what's the breakdown of your time between all of the things you have going on? It's like a rough breakdown. And do you sleep? <laughs> uh, I do sleep. I do sleep. I slept this weekend. I catch up with on my sleep over the weekend, unfortunately. <laughs> Once every seven um, days, whether you need it or not, right? I, I, I slept till one in the afternoon yesterday. You know, I woke up, my daughter was sitting there with her iPad going, did you sleep well? She said, guess what time it is, Daddy? Oh, my God. But, uh, but I must have needed it. So um, I would say the bulk of my time is divided between an event apart and the studio. Studio.Zelman because uh, a list apart, we have so many good folks doing that work. I don't really, I read the emails and I check in on Basecamp and stuff, but I don't really have to do that much. And a book apart also, originally it was Jason Santa Maria and Mandy Brown and me doing everything. But now we have Cattell Ledoux as a managing director. We have Tina Lee as a managing editor. We have so many folks working on it that I, you know, I basically meet uh, every week or so. We have a we have an update, and every couple of weeks we meet in person 
to figure out what we're publishing next and is something slipping in the schedule and does this author need help and all that kind of stuff and basically uh I, most of my work now is um the studio and setting up a studio and uh it's so much fun to me and like rediscovering tools and discovering new tools all that is great um Mainly what I'm talking about is, you know, Basecamp and Slack and stuff like that, more so than uh, frameworks and all that. I still basically, uh, I'm very old fashioned about that stuff. And uh, my developers too, like every, we basically still do everything by hand. We just like it that way. And I think we have more control that way. Cool. I don't know if I, I don't know if I answered your question. I probably have time for like one more. Uh, yeah. Wow. Thank you. It's been way longer than we planned, but it's been so good that we couldn't stop you. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, okay. So one last question. Sigi, well, um, you want to, we, we have two here. Uh, let's see. Well, well okay. let's ask you both questions and you decide what to answer. All right. Okay. I'll answer them both. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, but that's no fun. No, <laughs> okay. So, yeah. Okay. Mike Montero says that designers out of school should find a mentor designer to work with before doing their own thing. How important do you think this is? He's right. It's very, very, very important. I, I didn't have a mentor designer, but I worked in advertising for almost 10 years before I started doing web design. Yeah. And it was the same kind of training in terms of client services, working with partners. Um, I saw people take credit for other people's work. And I said, oh, that's a bad thing to do. I saw people disrespect their client and that didn't work out very well. I saw people respect the client. I saw lots of stuff and I learned lots of stuff. And I worked with creative directors who said, everything has to come from the product. I thought I was so much cleverer than I was when I got into it. I thought I knew stuff. And again, you know, I told you the story of Sal ripping me apart, but lots I, I had lots of experiences like that where I thought, I've done something fantastic. I can, now I'm going to go drink. And they were like, no, 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 you've just started. So um, uh, I learned a lot and I don't think I'd be able to do what I do if I hadn't had those years of, for better or worse, um, working with creative directors and working with partners and making mistakes. I think working at a place before doing your thing is important too, not just having a mentor, but having partners that you work with and, you know, finding out how to work with people. And uh, if I can suggest uh, from my own experience, like, because I, I went, I worked in the studio for only two months, then became a freelancer and learned a lot on my own flesh. Uh, like you said, also like clients not paying and everything. But one thing that I did do, and I just went to a big studio and I took uh, private lessons with the art director of that studio. He was like my mentor. I, I paid him, but he was like, you know, we met every Friday and he would give me private lessons on how to deal with clients and everything and how to work and how to present my designs. And that's priceless. So if anyone out there uh, hearing this, uh, if you're a freelancer already and you're like, okay, I don't have a mentor right now, then find a mentor. Um, also, if you're a freelancer, it's okay, I think. Uh, just, yeah, mentoring is very important. My dad, uh, my dad worked at a Chinese laundry uh, as a kid. And he used to bring laundry to this painter in New York called Emanuel Romano, who's a, a big painter, a big artist. Uh, and Romano never tipped him because he was poor. But after a while, Romano said, you like this kid? You want to learn to paint? And so my dad took painting lessons once a week for 10 years. As a result, he's an artist. Uh, that's not his job. His job is he's an engineer. 
but I grew up around art. My dad had all these art books and my dad showed me all this stuff. And as I was growing up, I loved to draw, but I also got a lot of help. I mean, admittedly, sometimes I just like looking at the naked ladies in the, in the art books, like, cause I was a little immature for it, but, uh, but you know, I, I like, I think having older people around who are experienced is always helpful, is always helpful. The same as it is in life, right? The same way we don't parent ourselves. We have people around who can you know, tell us not to play in traffic and all that. And last question. Reed Hoffman said, if you are not embarrassed by the first version of your product, you've launched too late. What does this mean for building a community and how can a side project be as agile as a startup? A side project can be absolutely as agile as a startup. Oliver Bears, Bears, Berries? Ask this question. Bears, Bears, Oliver Bear. I don't know. I'm sorry. We'll have to get um, the pronunciation from Oliver after. I, I, I think, I do think you have to do a little work up front to make sure that it's, you have to release a minimum viable product, but the minimum viable product has to have some, Thinking behind, I, I think it's not a minimal vi a minimum viable product if it isn't attractive, and if it's a mystery how it's supposed to work. I remember that thing, color or colors. Remember, like the, the guy got like a I don't know millions of dollars for this app, whose usage was completely mysterious because uh, it was almost uh, it was something that the developers knew how to use, and it was fulfilling some kind of vision but it wasn't clear to any human, how do I use this and why would I use this? So I think you have to have, in, in getting a minimum viable product out the door, I think you have to have something where there's a brand feeling to it, even though you're gonna refine that, you have to have something where there's a primary and secondary use case and it's delightful, you know, even though maybe there's errors, maybe there's problems for some users, um, maybe you're gonna evolve and pivot and all that stuff, but have something, that people can use right away, right? You know, if you're Instagram, you're not just a camera app because who cares? There's a million of them, but you launch with five filters. And today you have 15, great, but you launch with five. And when you launch, your web presence sucks. You have, you know, you're basically a closed door. That's bad, but you launch with a really cool camera app. So that's good. And eventually you figure out your web presence. I think, um, I think you you know uh, a side project it doesn't have to be a product, right? Uh, but it's the same thing. Um, if your side project is, I think it's also. I think you should like, if you're launching a blog, don't launch with your first article. Write five articles, then launch. You know, it's like that, and after that, you're agile, right? After that, you're agile, and you update, and you fix, you know. You change the navigation or remove it because it's extraneous. You figure out a different way of making money from it or you get a mailing list going or something. But, you know, you launch with a minimum viable product, but it still has a brand look and feel. And there's still some enough content that I can go back, read five stories and decide if I'm going to read you again. If you launch a blog with one article, I'm never coming back. Right. So do that. If it, um, side side projects are often these days are often products, apps. I have friends that the, the folks, uh, ProMedia Corp shares the studio next to me and they came up with a, an app. I don't know if you have Uber where you are. Okay, so this this product, uh, you're nodding and that's cool. So this product- Yeah, we have um, Uber here. <laughs> yeah, 
this product lets you, uh, before you hire an Uber or a cab or whatever, it actually lets you figure out what it'll cost if you take a cab, what it'll cost if you take an Uber, all this different stuff. It gives you all these competitive ratings. So they just made it for themselves one weekend and then it blew up on uh, Mashable. And so now this is, a, it's a part of their business. Now it's half their business. Half their business is the side product. Half the business is their client services work. Again, ProMedia Corp is the name of the company. And in fact, let me uh, look up the name of the product in case anyone wants to check it out, uh, which why wouldn't you? ProMedia Corp, uh, where is the app? Come on, about work services. Okay, well, it's ProMedia ProMediaCorp.com. Cool. All right. So, wow. So we, took, we got to go. Yeah, we took a ton of your time. Thank you so, so, so yeah. much. You answered a million questions that not only did they ask specifically for you, but also questions that came up just in the first couple of days of the program, the medium stuff and everything that you got into, books, everything, really. You touched on so many subjects that people were really dying to know about. So thank you. This has been hugely helpful for me, for Sagi, and for everyone else in the program. Thank you, guys. Keep doing what you're doing, and thank you, everybody who tuned in. Thanks a lot, Jeffrey. Good luck with the program. Keep me posted. Will do. Talk to you soon. Thanks, and have a good day. Okay. Bye-bye. You too. Bye.